I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and go to Galatians chapter 5, please. Galatians chapter 5. When you deal with the issue of uh, stubborn sins, difficult sins in our lives, it's important uh, to remember that they can create an impression, right? If you have a particular sin that you have struggled with for a long time, uh, what can happen is the impression can be created in your own heart uh, that it's almost inevitable and irresistible, right? I've, I've fought this fight so many times. I've failed so many times. This is just the way it's going to happen. It's, it's inevitable, and, and I really I don't stand a chance. The power of this sin is irresistible in my life. And part of the point that I've been trying to drive home, beginning of the very first message, is that that's actually a lie of sin. If you are in Jesus Christ, then you actually are not under the mastery of sin generally. You may have some specific sin that you have allowed to become entrenched in your life. But when it comes to the issue of sin, the power of it has been broken and you actually have been given a new power, a new nature, and also a new powerful presence, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, so there is not a, an actual inevitability and irris, irresistibility to sin. It is, it is a, uh, I think a deceptive feeling that can be produced in our hearts because of repeated failure. We, we start to think that way and that gets us halfway down in the fight. When we have lost hope, we are not prepared to fight like we ought to. And so part of what we have to do is, is come to grips with that, that in fact, there is, according to the scriptures, there is a moment between temptation and sin in which we make a decision. James 1, everyone is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed, and sin brings forth, where when it's conceived, it brings forth sin. So it is not inevitable, it's not irresistible, even though because we've trained ourselves in certain sin patterns, it can seem as if it, it's just like a, a match to a dry piece of paper. Match lit, flame breaks out. Right? We, can, we can have that feeling, but we need to step back from our feeling and put it under the microscope of Scripture. And Scripture, when we look through it, shows us a moment of choice there in which I yield to temptation. And so we're responsible for those choices and we must recognize that. So laying that foundation, we've taken two steps so far. All right. The first is to make it difficult to sin by removing opportunities and building in obstacles. All right. If I'm, if I've been on sort of a, fast track to certain sins, then I understand because I've been down this path a number of times, sort of what the road markers are, and I can see where the entrance ramp is. And so what I need to do is begin to thoughtfully look at the pathway and begin to remove the opportunities to make no provision for the flesh. Right? So, so if there are certain things that have made me susceptible to temptation, certain occasions that make me susceptible to temptation, certain uh, patterns of my life that put me in a position where I feel weak and susceptible, then I need to start to identify those and, and make certain I remove the opportunity for them. I don't open the door. And, and I need to be, I need to be committed to Christ on that because we can, we can think we can play with sin and, and we never win. Right? We, we think we can sort of fly close to the flame and our wings won't melt and, and boom, 
right? So we remove opportunities and we put obstacles in the way, right? Could be, which could be as simple as passcodes on your computer, could be having an established pattern in your communication. If you've had conflict in your home where, where when you have to address something, you, you put yourself in a position of humility under the word of God, you read it, you pray together, you ask for help, and, and therefore you're, you're clearly stopping the process and saying, if I'm going to get to sin, I'm going to have to climb over this wall, right? And, and having that kind of a process is where it opens the door for you to start to be responsive to the work of God. So, so we build obstacles in it. We, we do what we can to make temptation invisible, right? It's gone, and, and we make it hard to do the wrong thing. And that's not, um, that's not human self-dependence. That's, that's actually wisdom in application, right? It's, it's not that I'm trusting in myself. It's actually that I don't trust my flesh and I have no confidence in it. So I'm not going to put myself in the position where I have to rely on myself to obtain victory. I want to see the evil and avoid it rather than march right through it and get punished like Proverbs would talk about. All right. So first step is make it difficult to sin. Last week we looked at the second, which is to build biblical resistance by hiding God's word in our hearts. Because no matter how high the walls we build are and how careful we are, we're going to face temptation. And at the point of temptation, we need strength from God and strength comes through his word. It's his word hidden in our hearts that keeps us from sinning against God. And so we need to be ready for it. And I talked about a a general saturation with God's word. I I really don't think you will run the risk of putting too much scripture in your heart, right? So, so knowing what God's word says from the table of contents to the maps is a good thing. So, so saturate your heart in it, but also specific truths about the issue in which you are engaged. And you may recall if you're here, I said the core issue and then the things that contribute to it. I want to go in God's word. If I've got an anger issue uh, that I wrestle with perpetually, then I'm going to go find what God says about anger and I'm going to memorize and meditate on those. And some of you go, I can't memorize things. And here's the key then, meditate on so much that it actually all of a sudden it's in your heart, right? Because I don't think in the moment of temptation, Jesus is going to go, okay, now quote the verse correctly for me, right? He wants you to have is the truth that's in that text be in control of your heart, right? So meditate on it day and night. Think about what it means. Think about what the ramifications of that truth are for every facet of your life so that when you encounter the situation for which you've been preparing for battle, you have God's word as your light and lamp. Right? So the core issue, but also other things that might contribute to it, right? Most, uh, I mean, this is like random general statements, so don't argue with me, right? just listen to it, right? Very often, angry people struggle with pride too. So it may be that you're actually having to spend time wrestling with what God's word says about pride because the thing that ticks you off is your offended pride, right? And unless you wrestle with pride and the issue of humility, you're not getting to the root of why you get so upset about stuff, right? And and it may be that combination of your pride produces a kind of critical spirit, judgmental heart, so that when things don't go the right way, boom, right? Your tongue is like a sword because you've got a heart that's full of of anger over 
I know better how to do this than they do. Or you can't say that about me, right? And so you're just out here quoting verses about anger, but the problem's deep in your heart of pride. So, so what's the core and what are the contributors to it? And you can, you can find those in the word of God just as you're reading along, or you can narrow into a book like Proverbs and search it out, or you can type it into a topical index study and verses will be given to you. Right? You can, you can pick up a topical Bible and, and they'll have stuff. Right? The, this is not like a hidden secret out there. I mean, you and I have an incredible privilege of standing on the shoulder of generations of people who have prepared biblical tools for us to research. It's not that we lack the tools or access. It's that we're not uh we're not troubling ourselves to work at it and 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 that's really an important thing to recognize because uh there's something deep in our hearts that wants victory over sin in a very quick packet right show hand me the packet so i can you know shake it up pour it into my glass of water and drink it and now i've got no problem with the sin struggle and, and we need to realize that when we have spent years perfecting our disobedience, I mean, we're skillful at sinning. It's going to take transforming work of God's grace to change us. It's going to take God shaping our character differently, that we're being renewed. And, and the only microwave version of that is you seeing Jesus face to face, right? So if you want, if you want the microwave version, either Jesus is going to be back or you're going to go to Him. Then your sin fights over. Between now and then, it's going to be a path of persistent obedience to Jesus, empowered by faith in Him and trust in His Word. And that leads me into the third step. Look at, and what we're going to do is we're going to do two, uh, two principles foundational in two different passages and then talk about the application of it. Because the hard reality in a sin-cursed world is uh, when we've let sin become entrenched, that, that we need to be ready for when we fall. Right? If, I mean, if you came to me, and I've, I've said this before, because uh, it's deeply embedded in our understanding of, of both the nature of salvation and sanctification, that, that, that we're not, we don't believe, we don't preach and teach, we don't design ministry like there's some crisis experience that's going to solve it. Okay, but that it's going to be a matter of obeying Christ because you believe him. And, and that until you see Jesus, there's going to be a fight with sin. And often in that fight, we're going to fail. And, and we need to understand that. All right. And, and I'll say it again. I'm, in the context of discipling people, uh, sometimes people are just looking for the remedy that will solve all their problems. And when it doesn't solve quickly, they abandon. They're looking, they're looking for magic. They're not looking for maturity. And, and we need to understand that and recognize that the fight is real and we need to be ready for that because that's a part of how we actually eventually win. Right? We, we don't give up in the pursuit of Christ and the cultivation of godliness. Look at Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 16. Galatians 5, begin verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Then drop, if you would, down to verse 24, please. 
Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. All right, I said, I'm gonna, I want to lay out two foundational principles and then, then tease out the application implication. The first is this, that if you're in Christ, the Spirit is already fighting. If you're in Christ, the Spirit is already fighting in this battle. Look at at the description in verse 17, because here's the reality of life for those who have been born again. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Paul is talking to... uh, a group of believers that have professed faith in Christ, but now are being tempted away from the sufficiency of Christ for their justification and for their sanctification. And they're thinking that the law would actually be the key to living successfully in the battle of sin. And Paul has has warned them again and again that if they put their trust in the law, then they've turned away from Christ. It's, it's a false gospel. It's not Jesus plus keeping the law, because if you ever do Jesus plus something like that, you've effectively negated Jesus. I mean, he says very clearly at the end of chapter three that if a person could be justified by works of the law, then Christ died in vain. I mean, if there was a way in which you could be right by, right with God, on your own merits, then it was unnecessary for Jesus to die. You can never be right with God on the basis of your merits. You will never perfect righteousness in order to be accepted by God. You'll never be able to work off your sin. It just can't happen. So you must trust exclusively in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in the death of Christ as the answer for sin, right? And once you have, it doesn't eliminate the fact that you need to deal with sin, but it shifts the basis of it from being the law to the outworking of the righteousness of Christ in your life by the Spirit of God. The Spirit is working to produce in you the character of Christ right? so that you would be mature in him. He's producing, I, I skipped the reading of it, but in verses 22 and 23, he's producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. His reason of saying this, listen, if, if you're, Walking in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. Here's what the Spirit is producing in you. And these things, there's no law against. Right? The Spirit is going to produce this in you. He has taken up residence and has taken hold and has engaged the fight. Right? And, and that's important to understand because we're talking about the battle of sin, and you need to understand that it is not a fight that you fight alone if you know Christ. The Spirit is already fighting. Right? That fight began the moment you became Christ and the Spirit came to dwell in you. He set himself in opposition to the flesh. Right? That's the language in verse 17. He is opposed, the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. The reality for a believer in Jesus Christ is that the fight began at regeneration. And that fight will continue until glorification and the primary fighter in it is the spirit. He is at war with your flesh, right? And you need to believe that, right? Because this is what the scriptures are saying. The reason that's true, look at verse 24. 
Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay, let's just zero in. There's a category of people, those who belong to Christ. Who's that? That's the person who's come to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Right? Look at 327, just so you can get a a sense of this, all right? Uh, Actually, start in 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed clothed yourselves with Christ. Right? Look at the last verse of chapter 23. If you belong to Christ. Right? So, remember 524? Those who belong to Christ. So who belongs to Christ? Verse chapter 3, verse 26 says, those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, those who were baptized into Christ, and that's being placed in him. It's not making the water baptism the ritual by which you're saved. It's identifying with Christ, and in that way you are clothed with Christ. If you belong to Christ, your Abraham's descendants heirs according to the promise. So go back to 524. This category of people, those who belong to Christ, aka those who have believed in Jesus Christ, those who are identified with Christ as his people, notice the language, have crucified the flesh. Okay, and again, I'm, I'm going to be a little pedantic here, but it doesn't say will crucify the flesh, doesn't say are crucifying the flesh. It is saying something definitive happened to them when they came to Christ. The flesh was crucified. All right, that's a, another way of describing what I said at the beginning. The sin is no longer the master. You're dead to sin. The flesh has been crucified. You are not under the power of sin. You are not actually beholden to it because of what God has done for you. Its passions and desires have been crucified to you. You you have been set free from their obligation and their mastery. That language of crucified is past tense. Look at chapter 6, just so you can see how Paul used, he always used it in 2.20, right? I have been crucified with Christ, past tense. You have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So there's a definitive break between a believer and the world. So the world could be described as being crucified to me and I to the world. Just like the flesh has been crucified with its passions and desires. It is no longer the operating system of your life. But clearly, the battle's not done. The definitive blow has been landed. But in chapter 5, the spirit and the flesh are still in opposition against each other. So it's not as if the flesh has been removed. It's not as if you're somehow sinlessly perfect. But, but a decisive blow has been landed. And that blow was landed by the work of the spirit to make you a new creature in Christ, to place you into union with Jesus Christ. You belong to him so that your view of the flesh is it's no longer your master. You've been crucified to it. It's been crucified to you, the world. So, so it's, it's a frame of reference that's important to understand. So go back to chapter five again. What's our response to this? If the spirit is already fighting, and he is, because he has, he has done this work of, of taking us to Christ and crucifying the flesh. Notice now 16, 
5.16, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk or keep in step with the Spirit. All right, so here, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put a bow on the first foundational principle. The Spirit is already fighting because if you belong to Christ, the flesh has been crucified with its passions and desires. So walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. He's already fighting. So line yourself up with his fight. Okay, that's the first principle. Let me ask you to go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Just hang with me. It's going to come together here. 1 John chapter 1. All right, so the first foundational principle is the spirit is already fighting. Here's the second. The father is ready to forgive. The father is ready to forgive. 5.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. 1 John 1.9, I think I just said 5.9, didn't I? Sorry about that. I could tell I threw somebody off. I could hear the pages going. First John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're in the middle of the fight and we falter, we sin, right? How should we think what we should do? Well, we need to remember the Spirit is already fighting. The Father is ready to forgive, right? And notice, notice what the text says here, and I'll, I'll say more as we go through it, but the thing I want you to see here is that this promise is grounded in God's nature. So our rest hopes on him, not us. Look, look what it says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's, it's rooted in his nature. He is faithful and righteous to forgive. All right? And, and this, this is true all the time, but when you're you know, this is the 781st time you've failed in this area and you're wanting to go ask God forgiveness. Here's what can happen. I think the tempter would be go, well, you don't, you don't really mean this and you're not, you're not really doing it right. And, you know, if you really, if you really want to be forgiven, you wouldn't be back here doing this again. And what he wants to do is get all of your attention focused on you. And what is this text? Where does this text turn your attention? He is faithful and righteous to forgive and cleanse. Right? You're not coming to God for forgiveness because you are so good at getting forgiveness. And you're not not getting forgiveness because you're so bad at getting forgiveness, right? The whole point is you're supposed to look outward to God who's faithful and righteous. That is, he always keeps his promises. And if he doesn't keep this promise, he would be unrighteous, which would mean he'd cease to be God because by his very nature, he is the true God, which means what he says is true, what he does is consistent with that truth. That's what faithful means, right? God always keeps his word. He's righteous. Forgiveness magnifies his name. Look just quickly over to chapter two and verse 12, because I think there's a great statement here that helps us understand how this ties to God's character. Look at 2.12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you. What are the last four words there? For his name's sake. Right? So you've had your sins forgiven for his name's sake. 
as a magnifier of his glory, of a declaration of what he's like, who he is, that he's the God who forgives sin. In fact, you can trace that concept all the way back in the Old Testament, but one particular good example of it is after Israel has sinned at Mount Sinai and Moses wants God to reveal himself and God says, my glory will pass by and he reveals himself in in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, as the one who forgives iniquity, sins, and trespasses. Do you know how God wants you to know him? As a God who's faithful and righteous to forgive. That's the way you should think about him. Right? The whole... A distorted view that we've got of a God sitting in heaven with a baseball bat waiting for us to step out of line and then wham. And we don't, we, we'd act like we don't really believe that, but how many people get, and I've had people talk to me, right? They, they do something that's clearly wrong and sinful and their first concern is what's going to happen to me? Or what might happen to my family? Or what kind of consequences are going to happen? Because they're thinking only in terms of, of sin bringing consequences and judgment. And, and how can I alleviate that judgment? In other words, their whole perspective is along a human, horizontal, human-centered plane. It's not in relationship to God, not in relationship to who he is and and your relationship to him. Certainly, if you know him, he's your father. He's looking at you ready to forgive because he's faithful and righteous. I mean, he's saying, come. That's why that text is there. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. And that verse sits right after a whole series of verses about the foolishness of denying sin. And then right after it, right, that that if we deny that we've sinned, we make God a liar. I mean, we're basically trying to hide and cover it. We're insulting God. And then... That's one nine. One ten says that two one. I'm writing this to you so you won't sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's like everything about that passage is just pleading with you to deal with your sin the way God wants you to, because He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to cleanse you. All right. So here again. What happens when we fall, right? I need to realize the spirit is already at work and fighting and the father is ready to forgive. And that causes me to, instead of wallow in the mud pit in which I fell, is immediately begin to look outward and upward, right? That's, that's what we're trying to, I'm trying to show you. Right, Because what, what these two truths to me would help us think about is this third step, which is to deal with our sin quickly and correctly. How many times, how many times do we, when we've had a repeated problem with a certain sin or we struggled or maybe it's just like a cluster of a bunch of sins, is we essentially go, well, I've blown it. And then we just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the hole, right? I fell into the mud pit. I may as well play around for a while. I may as well lay here. It's just the way it's going to be, right? Which is not the response that God wants from our hearts, right? God wants us to deal with that sin. I use the words quickly and correctly, or you could use them a rapid response to our sin and and the right response to it, the way God wants us to deal with it, all right? So here's the first thing I say, just I'm moving now toward the application side of it. The first thing that should happen is a rapid response to the Spirit. Let's tease out this principle. The Spirit 
is against the flesh. They're in opposition to one another. And it describes the Spirit's desires for you, right? The flesh has desires for you and the Spirit has desires for you. And those are opposed to each other, right? So here's the thing is when I step into this process, and and here's what I want us to think about based on the scriptures we've seen, I even quoted this morning, right? Sin follows a pathway. You encounter something which appeals to your flesh. Everyone is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed, right? Then lust results in sin. Sin leads to death, right? So there's a, a, a progression that's happening. Right? And here's what I'm trying to get us to see is that the spirit is fighting against that progress because it's not really progress. It's a regression back to fleshliness. The spirit is opposed to that, right? You, you do believe Galatians chapter 5 or 17. The spirit is opposed to that. He has desires which are contrary toward that for your life. So here's what I can say to you then. The minute you encounter temptation, you know who's going to be starting to fight that in your heart? The Spirit. While you're entertaining that temptation, being drawn away of lust and enticed, you know who's fighting against that? The Spirit. When you're engaged in the act of sin, you know who is fighting against that? The Spirit of God. After you've sinned and you begin to feel bad, a part of that will be conviction from the Spirit about what you've done. He's fighting against it. So here's, here's what I'm saying to you. A part of breaking the chain and habit of sin is to respond to the work of the Spirit as soon as you become aware of it. As soon as as you are aware of conviction, you say yes to the Spirit. Because right? he's, he's fighting. Now, here's the, here's the reality of it. Sometimes we have made the slope so steep that it's, it's like, boom, we're down the slide. Right? Or because we have refused to heed the conviction of the Spirit previously, We've hardened our hearts. We've calloused our conscience. It, it is effectively the spirit is fighting and we're, we're not responsive so much that we're not feeling the prick of conscience. Right? He's, he's pounding, but we've numbed ourselves to it. Because one of the, I think one of the, uh, I'm going to put it up, a very bad lie of our day is that if your conscience doesn't bother you, it's okay. But you realize your conscience could be calloused against sin because you've played with it so much. Your conscience isn't the final authority. The word of God is the final authority. And, and it doesn't matter at all if your conscience says it's okay if the Bible says it's not. Your conscience is not going to be in the seat of assessment. And what we've tended to do is we toy with sin and, and we basically have taken the volume of our conscience and turned it down or effectively hit the mute button. And, and, but here's what I'm saying to you, right? I, I, I keep trying to think if I could pull this off. I don't think I can, right? But, but, you know, if all of a sudden, I mean, it wouldn't even work because I've got a strong enough voice, but if somehow all of a sudden the mic could hit mute, right? And I were still talking, but you couldn't hear me. The problem would be in your hearing. Right? And that's the point. The Spirit is fighting. 
I mean, do you believe Galatians 5.17 is true? If you believe it's true, then he is fighting. You may seem like, I, I can't, I, I'm not aware of it. I don't, I don't have any sense that he's fighting. I'm not, I'm not sure if he's fighting. He is. You need to respond to it. Because that moment when you stepped up to temptation, you went, ooh, man, I don't know if I should do that. Do you know why you were saying that? Because the Spirit of God has given you a new nature and his word is beginning to poke your conscience. And the minute you went, I'm not sure if I could go, should go there. You know what you should have done? I'm not going to go there. The minute you began to toy with it, well, I don't know, and you're going, the reason you're toying with it is because you're not sure. And the reason you're not sure is because the Spirit of God is at work and you should respond to him. The minute in the midst of your sinning, you are feeling the reality that this is wrong and I shouldn't do this is because the Spirit of God is fighting. Yield to him. Walk, led, keep in step with. The minute after you've failed and fallen and you feel conviction about it, it's the Spirit of God wanting to work to restore you to fellowship with God. Yield to him. Okay, at every point along the way, we need to be prepared to, to respond, right? We, when we have difficult, stubborn sins, the path to change often can work its way backward. And please hear this the right way. I'm not saying, so go ahead and sin and then get working on it. What I'm saying is that often, Again, I'll set it in context. Let's say you fought this sin for 25 years. So, so it's almost like it's second nature. I mean, it's, you don't go, boy, there looks like there's an opportunity to sin ahead. Boy, that'd be interesting. It's like, phew, hyper. I mean, you just, you know, you just got went into the pneumatic tube of sin and you were here one second and you're over here. It seems like, right? It's like, boom, it just happened. I don't know what happens, but all of a sudden, boom. Okay, so here's what I'm saying is, so let's say you, you cross the line to sin and disobedience, and, and at that moment, if you're under conviction, you need to respond. Because here's what I already said. I mean, how many times is it like, you go for days or weeks, and honestly, sometimes churches and systems have built into it because they're like, I can't wait till Sunday so I can get right with God. It's like, hello? 1 John 1, 9 only applies on Sundays? Where do we ever get the idea that we have to go to church to get right with God about some sin that we've done? The minute you are aware that you've sinned against God is the very moment you need to run to him. Confess your sins because he's faithful and just. Right, but but here's the point: is so okay. So you you've been you've been moping along in your feeling of failure and maybe messing with the sin for three four days. As soon as it really pierces your heart, say yes. And and here's what I'm saying: is it it starts to work its way backward because you're saying yes to the Spirit. You're more attuned to it. Your conscience is beginning to have the calluses peeled away. And all of a sudden, you're starting to be aware earlier in the process. Okay, and here's what I'm saying to you. Like, if you want to go from, from 25 years of defeat to instant victory forever, then... I'm going to say it as gently as I can, but you don't realize how self-centered you are right now. Because all you really want is what you want. And here's what God wants. God wants you to listen to him as a child does a father. He wants you to walk in the spirit. And so you need to go, I need to start to learn to, to heed the conviction of the spirit. I need to start to respond to the work of God's truth in my life. And, and, and I want to, I want to do it 
I want to be rapid response, but right now I'm, I've got a broken response in my response time, like should be 30 seconds. It's four days. I need to start moving it back so that hopefully when I start to see temptation down the road, I will go, ooh, I need to, I need to avoid it, not pass by it. I need to go all the way around. Or in the midst of it, all of a sudden, you find yourself tinkering with the thought of sin. You go, whoa, I can't do that. I can't play with this. Or, right, so scriptures say, flee youthful lust, right? The minute you spot it as a youthful lust, right? Or you're in the midst of the sin, and you become aware all of a sudden the scriptures would call you to put it to death, right? Not negotiate a surrender, right? You need to mortify the deeds of the flesh. And, and that means, boom, dead, gone. If it's after, then it's, it's turned to God, not away from God, right? Turn to him. I mean, you need to start to cultivate a kind of rapid response to the ministry of the Spirit so that you are, uh, are beginning to walk in the Spirit. He's already fighting. Join the fight with him. Right? Join the fight. And accept the fact that sin is deceitful. So you might not spot it as quickly as you thought you would. That's fine. The minute you spot it, respond, respond. Get, get in line with what the Spirit is doing. That's the first part. So a, a rapid response to the Spirit's work. The second is simply a right response to sin. Right? When, when God tells us to confess our sins, then the moment we're aware of sin by the gracious work of the Spirit through the Word, then we should confess it. Let me just let me let me just uh, chase out what I think is a, a a false kind of concept that that again because we have uh, you know we have a hundred and some years of people trying to replace God with with man-made theories about human function, all right? And, and sometimes people confuse the, the biblical teaching about confession with a secular view like catharsis, all right? And, and, and I, I say the talk therapy thing because basically Freud's the guy that took ancient Greek philosophers' ideas of catharsis, which is to to purge out or uh, to purify your emotions and thoughts by acting something out. And Freud took and wrote a book in 1895 where he started to unpack these ideas about how you can get rid of the negative emotions and feelings inside of you and you've got to verbalize them because speaking them can be like an act. Right, and, and it gets woven into all kinds of ideas. You hear buzzwords like, I need closure on this. Right? So there's something running around inside of me, and I'm not, I mean, I just I, I'm not ever gonna get over until I get closure. And so their whole concept is well, you get closure by by venting, by speaking it out, so you can relo- release the emotions and the tensions. And then you get I just had a bunch of bad, like unkind, like dimwit and stuff like that going through my head. You get a lot of well-intentioned, but biblically and theologically misguided Christians who start to talk about confession like that. Well, you just, you got to get it out because if you don't get it out, you're not going to get any closure on it. You're not going to, if you don't release those emotions and tensions, then you're not going to be able to go forward. And all I'd say is, and I mean this sincerely, if somebody could actually show me that from the Bible, I'll accept that. I have never seen that once in the Bible. 
that we speak out our sins so that we can get closure with them, so we can release the bad stuff inside of us so we can move forward. That's a bunch of psychobabble being carried over into theology. You know why I speak my sins to God? Is because I've sinned against God. Right? I have violated his will and I am acknowledging it to him. Right? That's confession is I acknowledge my sin to God. I see it the way God sees it and I speak about it the way God speaks about it. Right? I, I, I see it as what God says it is, and he's got a bunch of words in the Bible that help us understand that. Right? I mean, we saw them when we looked at Ephesians 2. Transgression, trespasses, iniquities. I mean, you, you can find all kinds of ways in which God describes our sin so that we have categories within which we can speak about them because the issue is our sin is between us and God. Our sin isn't about us and us. That's what this is. You know why you do bad things? It's because you're messed up inside. The only way you're going to fix what's inside is if you can sort of puke it out. You can get some closure with this stuff so it's not baggage hanging over you and you can get on with life and you'll be able to function better. It's not that there's someone you've offended by your sin and you need to seek his forgiveness. You have done something against him. And in order to have the relationship restored, you need to see it for what it is and speak about it the way that it's true. Right? I acknowledge my sin before God. I don't try and minimize it or excuse it or defend it. Right? God, I'm sorry I did this again, but... Right? Or I messed up. I'm fine as long as you're going to then detail out what the mess up was. Right? But, you know, sin is a little bit more than spilled milk. It's more significant than that. I mean, it's a cosmic crime against God, and we need to acknowledge it. Right? No, don't excuse it. Don't minimize it. Don't defend it. Right? We need to agree with God about our sins. That is, we take his side. And if it's genuine, I mean, I have unpacked this in larger, longer ways, but trying to just crystallize, right? Genuine confession is going to revolve or involve some regret over our sin. Right? I mean, think uh, illustratively, right? If I sin against somebody and I genuinely want their forgiveness, there is something in my heart that regrets having done it. If I, if I have no regret that I did it, then my seeking of forgiveness is just like a transaction. Okay, I got to get this out of the way because we're never going to be able to work together unless I like say I did something wrong. But I mean, honestly, I'd do it again if I had the chance, but I know this is a problem. So I mean, there's, there's genuine regret in the heart of God's child over having sinned against the Savior, right? We, we recognize that there is a wrongness to it. And there should be a resolve not to commit the sin again. Now, be, be careful here, because this is a desire, not a promise. And sometimes people, I think, manipulate people uh, on this point. The bottom line is... Um, it would be utter foolishness for me to, to say to God, I will never commit this sin again. Right? I could say, I hope not to. I don't want to. But, but I cannot promise perfect obedience to God. And God doesn't make me promise perfect obedience to him. Right? God doesn't say, okay, I'll forgive you this time as long as you don't ever do it again. That's not in the scriptures. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So, but, but that's not promising perfect obedience is, is completely different category than confessing a sin on the way to committing it. 
Right, Lord, oh, I'm so sorry I did that as you're like taking the next step of disobedience. Right, that's not a confession. That's some kind of thinking, thinking uh, it's all a point game and, you know, God's got a little slide rack over there and you sinned and it went this way, so I'm going to confess and push it back. That way it doesn't add, oh, there's another one. And I just keep sliding them back and forth because I really don't care about my sin. I just don't want the tally to get too high. So you, you have to genuinely have a heart that wants to be forgiven and cleansed and, and recognize that, right? You can't, uh, you, you can't be running toward your sin and be sincerely confessing it, right? That's, that's a part of what we need to recognize in this, all right? So I agree with God about my sin. I regret it. I want... I want God to remove it. I want it. I want to resolve to not live this way. And a part of that resolve might be, and again, I'm just tying together. Remember what step one is? Make it difficult to sin. Part of that resolve in my confession to God would be saying, okay, so, so what happened and why did I yield to this? And how could I guard myself against this in the future? Because I don't, I don't want to be back in this position. So, so I would be in the midst of my confession talking with God about how I want to honor him. And then clearly, we ask forgiveness for our sin because the goal is forgiveness and fellowship. And, and the scope of our confession should be the scope of the knowledge of that sin, right? I mean, I, I, I was using marriage last week. I mean, it's you know, it's been interesting. You get you get sons who are adults and have kids, and and so they're seeing things a little bit differently. But I was talking with the boys, and and uh, and I'm, I'm say this carefully, right? Because you, you obviously you know I'm not a perfect parent, right? That's for sure. And um, so there were times when I would sinfully deal with my sons, right? I'd get angry or whatever. And, um, you know, when the Lord would convict me about that, I would ask his forgiveness. But it didn't stop there, right? I had sinned against my son, so I needed to go ask my son to forgive me. Right, because if I'm serious about dealing with my sin, I'm not going to just like talk to God about it. I'm going to know a part of that is me going and confessing my sin to the one I sinned against. Now I said knowledge of it, right? So that, that they they knew I had sinned, so I needed to go confess that sin to them, right? And and so the reality of it is is that that process needs to happen. And, and so the Spirit's at work, so yield to him. God's ready to forgive, so run to him. Right? That's, that's what we should be thinking, and we should be dealing with this primarily. Right? Confession is important because it's primarily about the fact that it offends God and we want to walk with him. I mean, it's just one of the stupidest things that humans can do is to act like God doesn't know about our sin. Right? I mean, like we, you know, we confess, oh, God knows everything. And then we're over here thinking, maybe he doesn't know. It's like he knows you sinned. The only person you're trying to hide it from is yourself. He not only knows you sinned, but he's made a way for you to have a relationship restored with him, to confess it to him. He's ready. Turn to him, not away from him. And you want fellowship with him. If you're trying to fight your sin battle just because of how it's messing up your life, then you're always going to be off base. You're just going to replace one bad way of sinning with a better way of sinning. You're going to manage your sin more effectively. You're not going to be dealing with it the way God wants you to. But also confession is very important because it humbles us, and that's where God's grace is found. 
right? When you're never willing to confess your sin to God or confess that you've sinned against other people and confess to them, then, then, then it's pride. I mean, you're, you're wrapped in pride. I mean, you, you have to recognize that pride, pride has the, the root, the acts of humility chopping at it is confession. Right? When we'll confess to God our sin and confess to those we've sinned against that we have sin, that is, we own it for what it is, we don't excuse it, we don't minimize it, we don't defend it, we just lay it right down and say, listen, I know what God thinks about this and what God said about this, and I violated that. Right? It would do me no good walk into my son's room and say, hey, I know I lost my temper, but... Right? You made me mad if you hadn't done this or that. The bottom line, they did this or that is irrelevant. I sinned. They held no control over me. They did not make me sin. I chose to sin. Right? If I don't see it that way, then I'm not really seeing it the way God sees it. And I'm not confessing the way God wants me to confess. So we have to genuinely humble ourselves so that we can deal with it. And and reality of it, it stings, but it cleans, right? It's like peroxide into the open cut of your sin. It stings, but you need it, right? You need it. And in fact, it will it will work deeply in your heart in a way to make you cautious. Right? When you just keep covering it up, there's no consequence, and you become more and more careless, more and more callous. But when you open it up and you deal with it the way God says to deal with it, you might sting, but there's healing in what God is doing, and it also is working in you to make you careful because you understand what sin does at that point. You're being cautious now with it. These these two foundational truths must be embraced by faith. You accept and act on them as being true versus being controlled how you feel. Because I'm saying you the Spirit is already fighting, the Father's ready to forgive, and if you've had some stubborn, difficult sin, you don't feel like those are true. And I would suggest to you, you don't feel that way because you've been believing lies. And you need to believe the truth, accept it, and act on it. Right? You need to trust God more than you trust yourself. And sin will do that to you. I remember years, I mean, you, you look at me, you can tell it was years ago. Phil Dauber and I were running the Allen Park 8K. First time we trained for it, and we took off running, and, and we're clipping along and, and hit about mile three and a half, and I was feeling like I was dying. I mean, I, 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 mean, I literally thought, I am not going to make it. I'm, I'm still going. And all I kept telling myself, there was a member of our church who was a regular runner, and we had passed this person about two, mile two. And that person never was passing me. And I kept saying, if they're not passing me, then I must not be doing as badly as I think I am. I got to the end. I ran the last mile faster than I'd run any of the miles. It was just my body was just lying to me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I am like made to run through things, not run long distances, all right? That's, I was short burst of speed and high impact. That's, that's my life. But, but I was in the midst of it, and everything that I felt was not true. And I had to be thinking outside of it, right? What I'm saying to you is you're stuck in this, I and mean, your marriage has been torn by conflict and arguing and, and anger, expression, or your parenting has been what you'd consider sort of 
hamstrung by your inability to control your feelings, or maybe there's lusts or temptations that you've wrestled with, and you're just like, I'm on my own. The Spirit's not helping. And when I ask God to forgive me, I just like, I feel nothing. And I'm saying to you, don't buy the lies. Believe God's truth. Believe him. Believe him. And the heart of this fight is your relationship to God. Do you love him more than you love your sin? Do you want his fellowship more than your sin? Do you want the real joy of the spirits leading in your life more than the shallow pleasure of some sinful gratification? You're going to fail. We all will until we see Jesus. That's, that's, that's life in a sin-cursed world. The issue is, will you respond to it the way God wants you to? Will you respond quickly and correctly to sin when it happens in your life? Let's pray together. Father, please help us to, to be sensitive to the work of your Spirit so that we might be shaped and molded into the image of Christ, that we would yield obedience to his work of using the word to change us, to correct us, to convict us. And Father, help us to see you in the clarity with which your word present you, not to read what might be sometimes our stubbornness into you or our judgmentalism into you, but to see you as a father ready to forgive and to cleanse. And Lord, all of this, as we said at the beginning of the message, is for those who belong to Christ. They have acknowledged their sin against you have confessed Christ as their Lord, trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection as the only satisfaction for the penalty of sin. And so, Lord, open eyes to their true spiritual condition this morning. May no one be trusting in their own righteousness, their own religious performance, but only in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And may we have hearts that are sensitive to sin because we want to walk in fellowship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.